The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How's it going, guys? How y'all doing tonight? Do me a favor, grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 28. And um, I'm going to warn you a little bit in advance, like, This is less of a take notes on everything Jeff's talking about kind of teaching and more of a just track with me as you're going through this stuff because we're going to be, we're going to start in in Genesis, actually, well, we're going to, I guess, obviously, we're going to start in Matthew, but then we're going to start in Genesis and we're going to finish in Revelation. And um, this is less about you guys learning every little detail about what we're going to talk about and more about learning a framework by which you can use when you're reading the Bible on your own. Um, so we're just going to kind of walk through a whole bunch of stuff today. And, um, and I'm going to have you guys turn with me instead of putting slides up for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, the purpose of this series is to help us learn how to read the Bible better. And, and so I want you guys to be able to, to do this in your own Bibles as you're going through here. Um, I do know that if you use an app or if you use an iPad or something like that, that'd be a whole lot faster but I think I, I, this is me, and I know, I'm old, I know that, but are getting there at least, and, um, or well on the way there. But there's something different about having the book in your hand, I, and, and I don't know how totally to express that. I, I know Jeremy and I were talking about that today, and, and, and I was talking about the fact that you know how sometimes some of you who have maybe had the same Bible for a really long time, you know how like you can think of a certain verse if you're like looking for it, and in your mind you can almost like picture where it is even on the page as you become familiar with it. And I think that's part of just our ability to work with and understand and know um, the scriptures. So I'm gonna ask you guys. I would be. I'd rather you turn with me than write notes, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, so we're gonna start kinda in Matthew chapter 28 today. Um, Let me just open up in a quick word of prayer, because we have a lot of places to cover. Lord, I just ask for your grace, Lord, as we open up your word. I ask, Lord, that you would teach us to understand the scriptures, to understand um, these things as we look at them. And and I pray, God, specifically tonight, um, that you would open our ways in a new way um, to the miracle that we have here in our hands. It's an absolute miracle. It's a supernatural thing to have your word. And so I pray, God, that that we would just be filled with a new awe and a new wonder or a renewed awe and a renewed wonder as we look at these things tonight. And I pray that these would be things that that, that can help us, Lord, as we open your word in the future as well. So will you teach us to know you better and to understand you better? In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so here's what we're going to be doing for the next five weeks, uh, at least, if not slightly longer. Um, We're going to be doing a series here on biblical theology. Um, theology, most of you guys know, any ology means knowledge, knowledge of or study of. So if it's, um, I don't know, sociology, it's the study of society. If it's, you know, astronomy or whatever those things are. In, in biblical theology, the idea of theology, it means the knowledge of God. Theo meaning God, ology meaning study of. And there's different kinds of theology that are actually out there for those of you that aren't Bible nerds like I am. Um, One of them is called systematic theology, and that's most of the theology books that you'll ever run across. Most of them 
qualifies what's referred to as systematic theology. And what systematic theology is, is it's kind of definitions or summaries of beliefs or, or things about God um, that, that we need to understand. And so, for example, if you were to take, um, oh, I don't know, the Holy Spirit. You go into a systematic theology book, which is always about that thick, if not multiple volumes, and you would look up the Holy Spirit, and there's going to be a chapter on the Holy Spirit that's going to be kind of a summary of all the things that the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit, um, kind of all succinct, and it's going to, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's going to cherry pick passages from different places where we get some of this understanding from, and, and its goal is to build an understanding of the Holy Spirit, and that's great. I mean, systematic theology is important and, and great. There's another type of theology, though, that for me has just been so motivating for me in terms of reading the scriptures. And also, it's been eye-opening for me in a whole different way to just learn more about what the Bible's really all about. And that's called biblical theology, which is a little bit of a snooty name because you could say, well, there's just biblical theology. That's not what they mean. Biblical theology is different than other types of systematic theology or whatever because biblical theology, instead of a summary of everything in one concise place, biblical theology says, how do we understand that particular topic or that particular issue with regards to the overall flow of, biblical, of the biblical narrative? Like this book we have in our hands, literally, it's, a, it's an absolute miracle. If you study the history of it, the numbers of different people that wrote it from different languages, different walks of life, different continents, over um, the, the thousands of year time period in which the book was written, um, and then you see the flow and the succinctness and the unity that's in this book despite all of those other things, it's an absolute miracle. But it's not just some random collection of books. It's, it's not like if you took um, and, and compiled a collection of all of the books of David Copperfield, for example. Um, or not, not David Copperfield. Who's the author of that? Charles Dickens. Like if you took a collection of all the Charles Dickens books and you bound them into one volume, you would have all of his works, but you don't need to understand Oliver Twist in order to understand other random Charles Dickens book that's not coming to me at the moment. So you know what I mean? They're, they're individual stories that aren't necessarily tied to each other in any real way other than that the fact that they have the same author. That's not the case with the Bible. The Bible is one continuous story. It has a beginning and it has an end. It has a flow. It has a direction. And there are themes and tapestries woven into it um, that sometimes it's good for us to take a step back and look at this in an overall perspective rather than just like really, really up close. Um, because sometimes you get so close, if you're just looking at one verse at a time or one passage or something like that, um, it's kind of that phrase, you can't see the forest for the trees, you know what I'm talking about? So, so for example, when we were flying home from Africa just the other day, they would have the map, you know, on the plane that they have now, which we all love, on the back of your seat where you can tell where you are, and it would give two different views. It would show like a map view, and then it would go to data that freaks you out if you think about that stuff too much. You're like... 30,000 feet going 700 miles an hour. It's minus 100 degrees outside. Like that stuff will freak you out if you focus on it. But so, so the first map picture comes up and it's a zoomed in. And at one point we're flying over Greenland, which is all white actually. And so you're, all you see is plain and white and you see nothing else. You have no idea where you are. You've been napping maybe, maybe you're in Canada, maybe you're, who knows where you are. Then it goes to that screen with all the information. Then the next picture is zoomed out. 
And then the zoomed out picture, you go, oh, Greenland, that's where we are, because you get the whole overall map, and it helps you understand kind of where you are, understand why you were looking at the stuff that you saw before. Like, it helps you make sense of where you're at. Does that make sense? So that's what I want us to be able to do with the Bible here, to be able to remember that this is part of one big story. And so what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is taking different topics each night, and we're just going to trace that topic throughout the course of redemptive history, the way it's laid out in the Bible. And, and I think what you're going to find is that this is valuable because you see how God interacts with us. You see how God's purposes are unfolding. You learn about God in a unique way as you're going through some of these things. And it can help you make sense of things that maybe we as Christians have held to in a long time. And we sort of know it's biblical, but maybe sometimes we don't totally know why it's biblical. Things like, for example, discipleship. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Super churchy word, right? If you've been going to church for more than 10 years in your life, you've heard things about discipleship forever. The funny thing about discipleship, most people don't even really know what discipleship is. Um, Pastor Jeremy even told a story about how we were at a conference with this youth pastor when he was our youth pastor here, and this youth pastor was talking about the importance of discipleship for our kids. And so when it came time to ask questions, Jeremy raised his hand, and he was like, so how do you define a disciple, and how do you know when you've made one? And as Jeremy started asking questions that pushed beyond the superficial, churchy, yeah, make disciples. The Bible says to make disciples. But like to the actual understanding of it, the guy was like, uh, we'll talk later, and moved on to the next thing. Because most people are really familiar with terms like this, but sometimes we don't know totally what it is. So I'm going to start in Acts 20, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 28, because we're getting, we need to define the term that we're looking at. We need to know what it is we're actually tracing. And here's one thing, by the way, about biblical theology: um, it's only the study of topics that the Bible itself presents. Does that make sense? So things that God presents, things that God pushes to the surface, things that God promotes throughout Scripture. Biblical theology wants to trace that revelation, what God is doing, why he's doing it, how he's doing it. Does that make sense? So we're going to take this topic right out the gate on discipleship. What is discipleship? And we get the idea of discipleship from Matthew chapter 28. So you're there already. In Matthew 28, look at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples, interesting word for our topic already, went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Now, this passage occurs Five different times, or this, this emphasis occurs five different times throughout the scriptures. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. This final command Jesus gives to go and make disciples. This is the mission of the church. So what is a disciple? Well, we know that there's some element of teaching involved in it because he says in verse 20 that we are to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So a disciple is someone who has learned the commandments of Jesus. But it's actually much more than just someone who understands or knows the commandments. And I think there's a little tie-in here that's really interesting to help us understand what we're looking at that's going to be really relevant as we work our way through the whole text. And let me clarify something else, by the way, as we're doing this. I promise you, we are not going to monkey with Scripture whatsoever. 
This isn't going to be like a, well, if you look at this, and this is kind of like this, and if we can stretch this to this, and, and this sort of represents, we're just going to look at the things that Scripture itself says and let Scripture be our instructor. So, so biblical theology is not dependent upon my creativity as a teacher or someone's uh, creative way of reading scriptures or interpreting passages. It's just looking at what God is revealing to us as we go through. Does that make sense? So this idea of disciples, Jesus tells them five times, go make disciples, go make disciples, go make disciples. But if you know your Bible, he puts a little bit of a caveat on that or at least an asterisk. He says, go do that as soon as you have received the Holy Spirit. He tells them, do not even try to go do this without the Holy Spirit. It pops up in Acts chapter 1. This is where pages should go. You guys are tracking with me. Acts chapter 1 now. We're going to do a lot of this today, so get get your fingers ready. Paper cuts left and right. It's going to be a bloody mess in here. Acts chapter 1. Verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him. No, I'm sorry. Let's go, let's go back even further. Uh, verse 3, he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he reinstates, if you will, the Great Commission. So he tells them, go wait for the Holy Spirit. Lord, is the kingdom coming? Are we going to be in control now? Are we going to overthrow the enemy? Don't worry about that right now. Go wait for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's going to come come upon you, and then you are going to be my witnesses. So the Holy Spirit is tied into this element of discipleship. He's telling them, your job's to make disciples, but you can't do that without the Holy Spirit. Why is that? All right, I'm going to cheat just a little bit right now with you guys. There's other things we could walk through to get to this point. But for the sake of time, I'm going to give you a little bit of a cheat. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, see, that's a beautiful sound, isn't it? 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18. Verse, let's start at verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, speaking about the people of Israel who are not understanding who Jesus is. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. They, they know who Jesus is. The veil is taken away. They understand who Jesus is. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is their freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the, last word, spirit. So here's what we're looking at when we talk about disciples. The primary purpose of the Holy Spirit is to empower the mission of the church. 
And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit empowers the mission of the church to go make disciples is he actually makes disciples of us, which is right here in this text that says, we are transformed into the same image. As we behold the glory of God, we are transformed into that by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here's your cheat definition for discipleship without us spending a lot of time working through the nuances here. A disciple is someone who looks like Jesus. A disciple of, of any nature is someone who looks like the person that they're learning from, the person that they're following. Uh, uh, in, in Jewish culture at that time, um, I've talked about this before on Sundays, there used to be a phrase that people who were following a certain rabbi and that you would be called a disciple of that rabbi, they would say to you, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And what that means is, is may you be walking behind your rabbi so closely, so closely following him in everything that you do that even as he walks, the dust kicked up would get all over you. And so the idea is this. When Jesus says to the church, go make disciples, what he's saying is, go make people who look like me, followers of me, people who look like me, who teach like me, who do the things that I did. And we'll get into some of the details with that here in just a little bit. So the call to discipleship is one to look like Jesus, and it's a work of the Holy Spirit. This is what God is doing. So where does all the roots from that go? Now we get to start the fun part of all this. So go, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we touched on this this weekend, but we're going to read it again this morning. As God's creating the animals, verse well, just verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. Verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which waters swarm according to their kinds. That's the key phrase. It's going to keep coming up. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and let the birds multiply upon the earth. And there was evening and there was morning and the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So he creates all these animals based on their kind, their pattern. And he tells them, go be fruitful and multiply and you're going to make more animals according to your kind. So they're going to reproduce birds. They're going to reproduce animals. They're going to reproduce, you know, whatever they are according to their kind. And they're made in that pattern. But then when it comes to people, there's something really different that takes place. God says, verse 26, he's speaking in the Trinity now. This is Father, Son, Holy Spirit speaking. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the bird of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the bird of the heavens, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So when God creates man, man is created in a unique form, a unique fashion that is different than cattle, different than horses, different than dogs, different than snakes, different than whatever. 
But there's also something about man that God creates where we are in the image, not just about our kind, but God's kind. And the first thing that we see happen is God gives them dominion. He gives them authority over every other animal on earth. And in that, they carry something of the image of God even in that. For God is sovereign. He's the one with creator's rights. And God created, a lot of people think, oh, God created perfection. It was just absolute perfect Eden. That's not exactly what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that Eden was without fault, that this garden, this area was without sin, without error, but it's incomplete. It's not finished. And God creates Adam and says, now you're going to be about my business. You're going to work with me. As I've created this, you're going to now partner with me and you're going to cultivate the land. You're going to manage the animals. You're going to build this thing up. You're going to be fruitful and multiply. Even in that commission in verse 28, it's more than just, he's saying more than just go have babies, but build societies. You're going to create, you're going to fashion, you're going to build things out in the same way that I, God, am creating the earth. And so there's things, it's almost like God is taking his son with him to like take your kid to work day and you're like getting your kid to actually be part of the actual work that's going on in there in the room with you at that time. And so there's something of man in the image of God, partnering with God, doing the work of God, in close relationship with God, following the rule of God. God's going to go on to say, all the animals have been given to you for food except for this one. He lays down a certain level of authority or rule that they're to submit to. And man enters into this unique partnership. Even, even man's fellowship with one another is very similar in many ways to the unity of the Trinity because there's this open communication. Sin isn't spoiling relationship between one another. There's openness and trust, and there's all these things that are there. Everything's perfect until, as you guys know, chapter and a half later, everything explodes. Everything just completely, some would literally say, goes to hell, so to speak. Because now it's going towards a different direction than what God was building to. The things that, that Adam and Eve were supposed to build up are now being fractured and torn apart. Um, the, the unity that they were to be a part of and enjoy with God is now fractured as their relationships with one another aren't working. I keep leaning over to you guys when I tell the bad things, like this because you guys are the bad side apparently over here. But, um, but this, is, this is what's happening. So suddenly, there's this program that man was on that has now been broken. There's this relationship. There's all of these things that man was created to be a part of and created to walk in and created to be in partnership with God in that are now broken. But God is gracious. Amen. He doesn't just go, all right, well, let's just wipe them out. Let's go see how the Martians do. He doesn't go do like a whole new thing, get rid of a new people. From that moment, God comes looking and he comes looking for Adam. He doesn't wait for Adam and Eve to go, oh no, look what we've done. Uh, we should do a sacrifice. We should do some things to make up for it and then go back to God and say we're sorry. He doesn't do that. He pursues them at that moment and he says, Adam, where are you? And from that moment on, throughout the call of redemptive history, here's what we're going to see as we go through the Bible. From that very moment, that's the first call to discipleship. That's the first call in which God is calling his people back into relationship with him, back into a restored relationship, back into to walk in what they were actually supposed to be. Now, something is severely fractured. So in Genesis 3.15, we have a verse called the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel. And it says, 
I will put, he's speaking to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's this first picture that there's going to become a descendant, there's going to come a descendant that's going to put everything back together. But from that moment, God begins calling his people, forming a people in his image ever since. And let's take a look at some of those. Let's go now to Genesis chapter 12. So remember, what we're learning here to do is to be able to take this one topic and go, how does this theme trace through Scripture? So we're going to be looking at this call to be disciples, to be like God, to follow God, to obey God, to be a manifestation of God, to be in partnership with God, okay? And in Genesis 12, we have the call of Abram, or Abraham, a little bit later. And it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors, I will curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So think about what he's saying here. He comes to Abram, who lives in Ur, who lives in a a completely pagan, he's in a society of people who actually worship the moon. And he goes up to this guy and taps him on the shoulder, so to speak. And he calls Abraham and he says what? He's saying, if we could summarize it down to a really concise, easy to understand question, Abraham, follow me. That's what he's saying. Turn from the land that you're at, Turn from the world that you're a part of and come with me to a land that I'm going to show you, a place that I'm going to lead you to, and this is what I'm going to do, Abram. I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm also going to curse the world through you. Those who are a blessing to you will be blessed, but those who curse you will be cursed. I'm going to, you might say, execute both blessing and judgment on the world through you. And here in Genesis chapter 12, we have the first of the creation of Israel, but it's so much more than God just creating a nation out of the blue. What he's asking the people of Israel to become, what he's saying to Abraham that he's going to do through these people is, listen, I'm going to create a manifestation of who I am for the rest of the world to see. You'll be my ambassadors, you might say. You're going to be my people which means you're going to be like me. You're going to live in the way that I would dictate. You're going to be a representation of me on the world. And those who are a blessing to you, I'm going to bless the world through you. And those who curse you, I'm going to execute judgment against them too. And it's the very first call to discipleship. And, and think of it like this. When we today would say we want to go spread Jesus, we want to go make disciples, and we want to preach the gospel to the lost, what are the things that we would tell them? What are the things that we would call them to? Well, look what Abraham has to do in response to the call of God. What's Abraham's requirements if he's going to do this? He's got to believe God. Remember, he's a moon worshiper. For all we know, he's never even met this God before. This is out of the blue. For all we know, he's got to believe that this is the true God. He's got to trust in this God's plan that's being revealed to him, which actually takes quite a bit of trust. He's going to leave and go to a land he doesn't know anything about, and then he has to obey him and follow. 
Isn't that the same thing that we would call people to even now? Hey, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to trust him for your salvation, trust him for your plan in life, and then you need to obey and follow him. It's the exact same call that believers in Jesus, or we hope to be believers in Jesus, would be given to this day. But it's given to Abram in this very first form. And this is, so this is our first call, if you will, of discipleship post-Adam that we might see. Well, the story goes on, and, and we could look at so many more of these. We can't look at every single person in the Bible, every example of discipleship and all these kinds of things, but we're going to hit kind of the big ones. And so the next big guy in Scripture, well, it's probably actually Joseph, but we're going to skip ahead and go to Moses. So can you go to Exodus chapter 1? Now, the backstory, you guys know all this, right? God creates a people, Abraham, he's creating a family, it's turning to a nation, but the people of Israel end up, they're constantly rebelling, there's all sorts of issues and everything, then there's a famine, and then they end up in the land of Egypt, and now the people of Israel are in Egypt and they're enslaved. And so now they're under the oppressive thumb of a different king, different ruler, we know him as Pharaoh, and they're being, they are completely rejected, completely oppressed being beaten down, being burdened, uh, male children being murdered so that they don't become too powerful. It doesn't look like this people of God that God has created doesn't look like it's a good thing to be the people of God, correct? And so they're in, in slavery in Egypt, and they call out, and God remembers them. God remembers, it says in the book of Exodus, how as they would call out to him, the people of Israel, Moses would hear them. And so he's going to raise up a mediator, He's going to raise someone up that's going to be another representative of God, ambassador of God, to deliver the people from Egypt. Now, remember, some of these people, they've grown up. They've been uh, um, slaves in, in Egypt for, uh, what is it, is 400 years? I'm, I'm having a brain passing of gas. I can't say that other word from the pulpit, right? But <laughs> it's 400 years, right? So that, think about that now. That means for everyone alive during the time that this happened, you've only known slavery, You've had the gods of Egypt pounded into you. Like these people, for the most part, many of them have no concept of who the true God is. Many of them don't. They're even asking when Moses eventually comes, they're like, what God sent you? Because they're part of a polytheistic society with tons of different gods that are there. And yet God hears their cries. He understands their misery. He raises up this guy named Moses. And his job is to go as, if you will, a viceroy or ambassador for God to go before this other king and demand, let my people go. We know the story on this, right? So how does all of that actually go down? Well, take a look at Exodus 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. I probably should have said, we do understand, right? Moses was a Hebrew, but through this crazy providence of God, ends up being raised up in the very household of Pharaoh. So though he is a Hebrew and should be one of the people that's enslaved, God has preserved him for this very calling. And he's a person who's now been educated, a person of power, influence, money, all of this kind of stuff. So as he's cruising around free, all his brothers are enslaved. He sees another Egyptian beating one of his people. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? 
And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, I want you to keep a finger here, and I want to show you guys something. that This kind of stuff just gets me all excited about reading the Bible. Keep a finger there because we're coming back. But go to Acts chapter 7. And as you're turning there, I want you to think. If I'm the owner of a company, if I'm CEO of a company, and I'm looking to do whether it is acquisitions of other companies, I'm looking to maybe impress potential or current stockholders, and, and, and I'm raising up people, board members, you might say, or whatever the case may be, to go out and do meetings, to go out and recruit people, because our company's huge, and we're looking to raise more business, raise more money, get more and more people on board. What kind of guy do I want to go out and represent my company? I'm, I'm probably wanting someone similar to me. At, at least someone that maybe thinks the same way that I do about the business, someone that understands the vision of the business the way I do, someone who's going to go about it the same way. I want someone who's going to go out there and pitch things the way that I would. You're probably in your business going to train people to do those kinds of things. That's normally what you would do for a representative for your company or ambassador for your nation. Well, here's Moses. Now, on paper, he's by far the most qualified guy to lead the people of Israel, right? Because who else has his, who, who else has his education? Who else has his resources? Um, there's extra biblical writings that say that Moses was even trained as a military commander and had actually led Egyptian armies in vast military successes all over the place. Like, this guy was trained. There was no Hebrew even close to him. But did that mean that he's like God to go and be that ambassador that's going to lead them. Well, if you look at Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen's speech, or it's a better way of saying it is Stephen's sermon. Stephen's about to be killed. He's a follower of Jesus. He's, uh, many people call him one of the first deacons, and he's about to be stoned for his, and I don't mean organ stoned, I mean rocks stoned. Um, he's about to be stoned for, I just love that joke, sorry, I do it every time. Um, <laughs> Uh, he's about to be stoned for his beliefs in Jesus, and he gives this kind of speech or sermon about God, like he's testifying to who Jesus is, and he's tying Jesus into all of redemptive history, which is what we're trying to do today, as a matter of fact, and he tells us some things about Moses. So if you take a look at it in verse 20 of Acts chapter 7, look what Stephen tells us about Moses. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, in other words, revealed as being a Hebrew, and the, the thing was happening to all the guys, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel." And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So that's the story we just got, right? But why did he strike down the Egyptian? What was his purpose in doing that? Look what Stephen tells us in verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So when Moses went out, 
It's not that he saw someone beating a Hebrew and he saw this cruelty and became enraged about this act of violence and just flew off the handle and kills the Egyptian. And then he's like, oh no, I better bury it. This isn't some like crime of anger, crime of passion kind of thing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He's like, now they'll know to follow me. I'm the guy to deliver them. And they're going, he made a calculated decision to strike out in anger and to strike out in wrath and take this guy down. And he's thinking to himself, then they'll know I'm the guy that's been anointed. God had revealed it to him. He knew that his purpose was to deliver the people of Israel or be used by God to do it. The problem is he did it kind of his way. He did it in a way that actually looks very Egyptian, if you actually think about it. It doesn't look like he's an ambassador for God's people. He looks much more like an ambassador for Egypt's people. And that's not okay with God. Because God is like, look, I, I want you to lead my people my way because I'm not just trying to get Israel free. God's not just trying to get them out of Egypt so that they can be their own nation. What is he trying to turn Israel into? Disciples. He's trying to create not just a nation, but a nation of people that look like him. So the way Moses goes about this becomes very important. The way Moses leads the people becomes very important because God wants them to lead in such a way that they are learning to be like God. And so when Moses violates that, strikes out in anger, looking much more like an Egyptian than actually a follower of God, what happens? The whole thing implodes. Interestingly enough, what's the response of the, the Jewish people when he says, are you going to follow me now? What do they say? Who made you ruler over us? Now, here's what's really interesting about this. And I won't make you turn to all these just for the sake of time because we're already running out of it. But think about this. Moses strikes out in wrath. They reject him. The phrase they used to reject him, eerily similar to the phrase used by the people in Israel who reject who? Jesus. Who made you to rule over us? We will not have this man rule over us. We have only one king that is Caesar, is the response of the people. But interesting, think about what happens. So Moses has to run for his life. He has to leave behind the power that he had in Egypt. He has to leave behind the comfort. He has to leave behind all of the amenities of the world that he had that gave him an advantage over everybody else. And he runs out into Midian, going back to Exodus now, everybody, where he becomes what? Come on, you guys know this out nice and loud? He becomes a shepherd, which is super interesting if you start thinking with regards to the big picture of Scripture. He goes and becomes a shepherd. That's, that's for, for how long, by the way? For 40 years. Now, let me ask you, come year 39, let's say, if you'd come up to Moses and had a really good conversation with him about all this stuff, and said, Moses... And I, I hear that you really felt like the Lord totally told you you were going to lead Israel out of Egypt and all that stuff. Like God had called you for that. And he'd probably be like, yeah, I really, I, I knew that. That's what I was supposed to do. And I was more qualified than anybody, but I, I blew it or, or, or they didn't listen, whatever the case may be. But, but he said, but Moses, do you think that's still you now? What do you think he would have said? Nope, blew it. God will pick someone else. God will do something else, but it's not me. And we know that to be the case. Because what happens? God comes to Moses through the burning bush in chapter 3 and says, this is what I'm going to do, Moses. Moses, take off your sandals off your feet. Exodus 3, verse 5. The place you're standing is holy ground. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid. And then verse 7, And the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Look at verse 10. Come, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out of Israel. And verse 11, or out of, excuse me, my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. And verse 11, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? His response now is completely different. Before he would have been like, of course I'm the guy. I am the most educated, the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most trained, the most experienced. I, I have the most understanding of Egyptian subcultures. I have all of this stuff. Of course it's me. But then he ends up in a place where he's like, who am I? Now, we know that God is doing this because even he already said it in the work. God himself said um, in verse 10, I will sit. No, sorry, I lost my place. I have seen the affections. I know there. Verse 8, and I have come down to deliver them. God was going to be the one that's to deliver. He's not looking for Moses to be the guy to deliver. He's looking for Moses to be his representative. That's the only role that Moses is going to have. You're the ambassador, Moses. You're the leader. You're the witness to who I am. You're going to witness and testify about me to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him who I am. You're going to demand that the people be let go. But God's saying, I'm the one that's going to do the work. Now, here's why this is amazing here. Like I said, God wants to not just create a nation, but he's trying to create a nation of people that look like him. And there's something really interesting in Matthew, or excuse me, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, that it says about Moses. It says, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Which on the surface is funny. It's like you're, you're not allowed to go to someone and say, I am the most humble person you have ever met in your life. It's true. Like you're not allowed to say that because then you're sort of instantly not humble. But if the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 write that down. <laughs> when you're writing scripture, it's probably right. And the self-descriptive statement about Moses later in life says, Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now, those of you that want to go ahead and tie some connections, this is the, the part about biblical theology that I love. You start seeing how different things come together. In the New Testament, when Jesus is teaching, he makes one declarative declarative statement about his own like character like about what his personality was like about who he was like in terms of what it would have been like to interact with him he makes one self-descriptive statement anybody know what he says about himself he says he is meek the actual verse matthew eleven twenty nine. 29 take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest from your souls and so Moses goes from acting more like an Egyptian in striking this guy down to becoming a shepherd. And I don't know if you know anything about shepherding. You can't beat sheep and expect them to go where you want them to go. It doesn't work like that. Sheep follow. Cattle are driven. We'd see it in Uganda. You'd see a little bitty kid with a stick and a giant cow with these big, huge horns. But a little kid with a stick in the back could whip it like that, and they would follow. They would just go wherever it is he wanted to go. You drive them. But sheep don't work that way. They have to be led, and they have to be led gently, and they have to be led meekly. And this is what Moses was having to learn. So what does Moses get sent off to Midian to do? He becomes a shepherd, interestingly enough, so that he becomes more like the great shepherd. Jesus Christ, as he will be talked about later. 
So Moses is not just the leader, but he has to be a leader that leads in the same way and fashion that God would. In the same way and fashion, you might say that Jesus specifically would, because the people who make disciples need to be disciples themselves. Do you guys, are you tracking with me on this, or am I just getting all excited about my own theology nerddom right here? Is this, this is working? Okay, so, so Moses is called to lead the people out, and so this is what they're going to do. So what happens when they go into the wilderness? Well, they're following God, quite literally, aren't they? The people of Israel are released. They have to trust and obey and follow, so they go. And now they're making their way through the wilderness, and they're following the pillar of, of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. I usually get those backwards. Um, but they're literally following God. And what's happening along the way? They're learning more and more about God. They learn about God's provision as he begins to give them food. They learn about God's patience as they mess up over and over and over and over. And they learn about God's character and nature through the giving of the law. So Moses goes, gets the law of God, brings it back, gives the Ten Commandments to them. And in the law that the people of Israel are given, it's not just random rules that they're to follow. But here's one of the things that we learn about the, the moral code that's given. It's actually descriptive of who God is. Take a look at Exodus chapter 34. God describes himself. In Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth in worship. So what do we learn about God there? We learn that he's, he's patient, he's forgiving, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, um, he's abounding in love, um, he's faithful. So we learn things about his character. Now take those things and think about the law that God gives. God says, for example, to man, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Thou shall not commit adultery. We're to be faithful to our wife. Why? It's not just a random rule. It's not like God's like, because years later, we're going to do Ancestry.com. And if you guys have 10 wives, it just gets really confusing. So I'm going to give everybody have one wife, and that way it's just going to make the family trees easier. That's not what he's doing. We are to be faithful. Why? Because God is faithful. We're to show grace. Why? Because God is gracious. We are to value life. Why? Because we're made in the image of God and God values. And, and so what you start seeing when you look through the, the, the actual Mosaic law is that it's teaching them more and more about God. It's calling the people of Israel to be more and more like God in their nature. And so you have laws, for example, concerning the alien. He says, hey, in your land, the alien, not space alien, but foreigner, when someone's looking for a place, man, you're to show kindness to the alien. You're supposed to bring them in. Why? Because you were once not a people, and I came and showed grace to you, God would say. He'll say, hey, you're supposed to feed the hungry. Why? 
Well, the people of Israel, when they were wandering through the desert and they were starving, a people who were once slaves and are now been rescued and being led by God, were fed by provision of God's hand. So in all the different things that God's calling them to do, he's, he's actually discipling the people of Israel as they walk through the wilderness. They're walking together, you might say, and learning from one another. Now, their unbelief and their unwillingness to trust God and to believe God delays them getting to where God's trying to take them. In more ways than just one. But this is what God's doing while he's there. Even some of the weird laws about uh, tattoos or about um, shellfish or things like that. that you go, Why would God make such a random rule? Well, they weren't random rules. They were rules designed to separate the people of Israel from everyone else that was around them. God's desire was that these people would stand out. You might say a city on a hill, a light to the world. So that when the rest of the world looks at Israel, they understand there's something different about them. And they begin to learn not just about, oh, what a great country Israel is, but what a great God Israel has. Because they are following and they look like God. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me on that, right? So how did that go? Not great. Um, the history of the judges, we don't have time to go through all that right now, but it could be summarized by Israel decides they don't want God to be their leader anymore. They want their own leaders or they don't want any leader. They get themselves in trouble, end up imprisoned, which always happens. That's a whole other thing. You could look at slavery, for example, if you wanted to do a biblical theology thing. And watch how many times whenever the people of God, be they the Christians in the New Testament or Israel in the Old Testament, walk out of step with God's will, sin against God, and decide to do things on their own, it always leads to slavery. It always leads to imprisonment. And that's what happens in Judges. And so the people of Israel, they rebel against God. They end up in prison. They cry out to God. God remembers them, shows mercy, and raises up a deliverer to come and rescue them. And then you get into the period of the kings. Now, the period of the kings is actually quite interesting. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel was, was one of the judges, you would say, one, one who was being used by God to lead and govern Israel. Israel did not have a king yet. They were a theocracy. They were led by God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, that's awesome, and your judges do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when he said, or when they said, give us a king to judge us. Now think about what Israel is saying here. Here's a nation created to be like God, to represent God, to be a picture of who God is to the world around them. And what's their complaint? What's their request? We want to be like everybody else. We don't want to be like God anymore. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king like them. And so Samuel's grieved. This is not what Israel's supposed to be. It's not what they're supposed to come. But God sometimes will actually grant us our requests, even knowing where it's going to lead us. So verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, 
and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. And look what God's telling them, okay? If you want to be like everybody else, fine. If you're rejecting me, if you're rejecting my leadership, you don't want to follow me anymore, you don't want to rule under me, in the same way Adam rejected them, in the same way people have been rejecting him forever, he says, okay, if you want a king like everyone else, that's fine, but notice what you're going to get. Verse 10, so Samuel took all the words of the Lord to the people, and he said, these will be the ways of the king, verse 11, who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for, to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain. He goes on and on and on and on and on. And God sets up for them the difference. He says, okay, if you want a king like the rest of the world, that's fine. But you need to understand something. Kings build kingdoms. And if they're not building mine, they're building theirs. And so instead of following me, who to follow God is always to seek joy in God. God is always for our blessing. We just don't always see it that way. And he's like, okay. But this is what you have to understand. The kings you're going to follow are going to be just like people have been forever. They're going to be about themselves. They're going to take from you and build instead of leading because they love you and want to bless you and bless others through you. They're going to take. They're going to take. And he sets up this interesting parallel between the economy of the world and people of the world and what God's actual program is. But they don't heed the warning, and so they take a king. So how does that work out? Israel gets fractured. Just like we saw in the book of Judges, when you choose not to follow God, they end up being taken off into captivity. One goes off into Assyria, one goes off into Babylon, and it's a train wreck, and it seems like the story of God's great project in building disciples and creating a people of his own has ended. And then the prophets come. The prophets are so much easier to understand when you understand the prophets throughout the story from, from let's say, 30,000 feet. Some of the prophetic writings, if you just dig down into them, can be really difficult to read really burdensome to read. Some of them are dark. Some of them are confusing. And you go, what are they even talking about? Why is this guy laying naked on his side for three years? I don't understand that. Like, what is all going on in some of these texts? But this is where things like biblical theology can be so helpful because you can understand what's going on from a, from a, a more bird's eye view and suddenly everything makes sense. Because take a look at Jeremiah chapter one. How are we doing? Five minutes to finish half the Bible. Totally can do that. Jeremiah chapter 1. Yeah, we got to really, really hurry. It says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were when Anoth in the land of Benjamin, verse 2, to whom the word of the Lord came. So in writing this, he's saying, this is the words of Jeremiah, but what are the actual words that were actually being given? They're not technically the words of Jeremiah. They're actually, look at verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me and said, before you were born and formed in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you to appoint you a prophet to the nations. But he said, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am but a youth. But the Lord said, do not say I am only a youth. 
For to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. In that first paragraph of the book of Jeremiah, you have a definition of what a prophet is. A prophet speaks for God. If you take the same analogy you've been working with, you might say he's an ambassador for God who was called into a time where none of Israel was following him. Israel was a mess, and the prophet is given words by God to relay them to the people of God. And so what are the messages that the prophets give? Man, I wish we had more time to go into all these, but we're going to have to hurry up. But Ezekiel 34, for example, in Ezekiel 34, God calls out the false prophets of Israel. And he says, guys, like I gave you guys blessings. And instead of being a funnel of those blessings to carry to the world around you, you, you got fat on them and stayed. You, you took the food. You took the blessings. You took all these things for yourself. You were not operating in the way that I called you to operate. And why is that such a big deal? Because from the very beginning, God's trying to, it's not just that he wanted priests or he wanted national leaders to operate in such a way. All along, he's trying to tell the world who he is and call people to him. And he's like, guys, and I'm not like that. I don't take. That's what the people of the world did. Go ask the people in the Kings in 1 Samuel. That's not what I do. I wanted to be able to bless the world through you, and instead, you took all the blessings, made everything about you, which is exactly what God had warned that all the previous kings were going to do. He said, that's not what I look like. And so through the prophets, what's God doing with the people of Israel? He's constantly calling them back into right relationship. He's calling them back to repent. He's calling them to come back to the type of relationship with him that they were supposed to have all along. He's pointing out the areas where they failed in representing him in all these ways. And he's saying, come back, come back, come back. But he also does it a little bit differently this time. And in Jeremiah 31, we're told about something new that's going to take place in it. And in Isaiah chapter 53, we're told about something else new. You see, the problem is is that we could never be really faithful when we had these broken hearts we inherited from Adam in the beginning. And so God says through the prophets, there's going to be a new thread of hope here. There's this new covenant coming. I'm sending a new servant. This new servant will represent me perfectly. He will faithfully uphold everything that I've asked him to do. And then I'm going to do a new covenant. And in this new covenant, I'm going to take these hearts of stone that you have, and I'm going to replace them with a heart of flesh so that my will, the things that I want you to do, the stuff I want you to obey, will be written on the flesh of your heart, not on some cold, stony tablets. And so there's this new thread of hope that's given to us. And then there's silence for many, many years until Matthew chapter 1. And how does Matthew chapter 1 start out? With everyone's favorite passages. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, father of Isaac, Isaac, father of... Like everybody, you guys can't wait to hit these passages in your devotions in the morning, right? But there's a purpose behind it. What's God doing from the very beginning in these books? He's tying the work of Jesus to something that's been going on for a long, long time. He ties Jesus to the work of Abraham, to the work of Moses, to the work of David, to all of these things. He's saying, hey, this guy is part of something I've been working on for a long, long time. If there was ever an argument for the validity of biblical theology, it's even right here in these genealogies. Um, In the birth announcements, it's tied to the prophetic writings that talk about this Jesus that's going to come. So we understand that this is this promised Savior that's going to come, the faithful servant who won't turn his back on people the way Israel did. He will obey obey God in every way. He won't fail and be unfaithful the way we have been over and over and over. And Jesus comes on the scene and is born. 
There's so many more little things we could, we just don't have the time. But what's the first thing Jesus does when he starts his ministry? He calls what? Disciples. He gets some guys together and begins to pull people to himself. And what's the call? Follow me. Follow me. Jesus is continuing this same program that's been going on all along. So he calls these disciples to follow him. Luke 5, 7. Luke 5, 1 through 11. Luke 5, 27 through 32. Luke 6, 12 through 16. Over and over and over. And what does Jesus do with these guys? He teaches them. He teaches them how to do what he does. Look real quick at Matthew chapter 10. So just in Matthew alone, and hopefully, if your Bible has these little subheadings, it'll, it's even easier to look at. But, but if you turn back, like looking in, I'm back here in Matthew 8, for example, 28. Jesus heals a man with two demons. Then in Matthew 9, he heals a paralytic. He calls Matthew, another disciple there. There's a question of fasting. Then he restores to life a girl and a woman is healed. Then he heals two blind men in chapter 9, verse 27. He heals men who are unable to speak. Uh, like there's this constant word. And then he gets to the end of chapter 9. And in verse 35, Jesus went through the cities, teaching in synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, healing disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his heart. Now, now check this. Jesus himself is going and doing this. Jesus heals these people. Jesus heals these people. Jesus casts out these demons. And he sees these building crowds. He's got his guys with him. And he looks at him and he's like, there's so many needs. There's so many people that need the shepherd, that need relationship with God, that need me. Pray to the Lord that we can raise up more harvesters to go out and do this. And then what's the very next thing that happens? Look at chapter 10. There's a summary of the 12 apostles in verses 1 through 4. And then in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sends out. And what does he do? He sends them out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. What is he doing? He's telling them to go do what? What he's been doing. He's making disciples. He's multiplying, if you will, his ministry through these men that he's been leading and teaching all the way. All the things we've seen him do now for 10 chapters, now he tells these guys to go out. And he's teaching them. He's instructing them. He talks about what to do with money, what to do about villages that you go to when they reject you. He gives them some warning. Then look, verse 16, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents. He starts telling them, look, as you go out and do this stuff, understand there's going to be opposition. People are going to come against you. People are going to reject you. People are going to be angry at you. They tried to throw Jesus off a cliff once for healing someone or casting out a demon. They're going to do this kind of stuff to him. So what's he doing? He's teaching them to do what he did. He's teaching them how to be like him and represent God as they go out and serve in that particular way. Not for their own glory, though, because what's the warning that ends up coming? They go out and they actually do it, and they come back and they report to Jesus, and they're like, Lord, even the demons obey. Like, we're casting out demons, and they're obeying us, and we're doing all this stuff, and we're raising the dead. It's working. It's working. And what does Jesus say to them? Don't celebrate that. That's not your win. 
And he says instead, you rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What's he telling them? He's like, look, this isn't about you. Don't start celebrating the fact that you're having success and all these kind of things because it's going to puff up your ego. It's going to make you about you, just like the kings of Israel did in the back in the day, just like the prophets who decided not to do what God was calling them to do in the day. But instead, you rejoice that God saved you. Your purpose in all of these things is just to bring glory to God. You're just the ambassador, the viceroy. You're just the witness, the disciple. He's the true leader. And this is the kind of leadership that we see Jesus with these guys all the time. And then if you want to converse that, who are the people Jesus yells at? It's the Pharisees of the day. And what are the things that he tells the Pharisees of the day? If you read them, they are strikingly similar to the things that the prophets call Israel out for as well. They're saying, Look, your heart is far from me. You're you're laying burdens on people and not helping them. You're living about all these rules, but that's really because it's your reputation, your own power and influence, but your heart is far from me. You don't look like me, is what he's saying. You're not operating like me. He goes into the temple where it's supposed to be a place where these prophets, or excuse me, these priests are to be the mediators. Their job is to be the ambassadors for God that lead people in sacrifices so they can have relationship with God. And instead, they're abusing them. They're taking advantage of them. They're extorting them for money. And Jesus comes in. It's my favorite thing maybe in all of Jesus' stories. Like he makes a whip. Like he has to go actually make the whip, um, which I think is amazing. Because how long does it take to make a whip? It's not instant, right? Takes you a little while, which means Jesus had lots of time to rethink that. Like at least a few minutes, right? At least a few minutes to walk over and get the stuff together. Going, yeah, there's other things I could do, but nope, this is it. <laughs> and he goes, like, but that's how deadly serious he is about what's going on. That he will drive that out to say, listen. Your job was to be a representative of me, and you have failed, and he gets a whip to deal with that, and at the same time, leading his disciples. Then, as you guys know, Jesus models the humility that we know of and goes to the cross, whereby he pays for all of our sin and rebelliousness and unfaithfulness to him. It's, it's the place where the, the new covenant is even made possible so that he can put that heart in us that actually has a fighting shot at obeying Jesus at all. He raises from the dead, defeats sin and death, proves who he is, and then he calls all the guys together. And as you read the accounts there at the end of the Gospels and the early book of Acts, you see he becomes very intentional in his teaching during that time. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's teaching them, okay, look, I'm going to be going. You're going to go to Israel. You're going to get the Holy Spirit. He's commissioning these guys. I presented it in uh, Uganda. I said, in your... When I was about to leave to go to Uganda, I had called my kids together, and I gave some of them jobs. You know, hey, look, I need you. Brush my dog. My dog will be a tangled, matted mess when I get back. Hannah, I know you can do this. Brush the dog for me, okay? Um, Bentley, my instructions to you, just please don't break anything. It, just that. If you just do that, win. Like, just... But, as I'm leaving, you give them these tasks. Like, I'm going to be going away, and these are the things I want you to handle while I'm gone. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's like, look, this is the mission. This is what's going to happen. He sends them to Jerusalem, tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and that their job is going to be, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to make disciples. Now, in two and a half minutes, how does the rest of the Bible tie into all that? Actually, I, I, I hate that we... Uh, are this out of town, out of time, because I think some of the rest of it is even the best. But just look quickly, for example, at Ephesians. 
In the book of Acts, we get the story of the spread of the church, God's mechanism for creating disciples, the works of the Holy Spirit as he begins creating more and more people like him. And it's interesting, the disciples before the Holy Spirit came didn't really look like Jesus a lot. They looked a lot like the world, arguing about power, making mistakes, swearing they won't do anything wrong, and then being instantly unfaithful and pretending they don't even know Jesus at times. They look like normal people. But then all of a sudden, in the book of Acts, you see guys like Peter willing to die. You see Stephen standing there and preaching this glorious service. I mean, I mean, Peter, the guy who, who couldn't seem to say anything right once, gives the best sermon ever. 3,000 people get saved, and even people that didn't know Jesus looked at the apostles, and they go, man, these guys look like they've been with Jesus, because that's what Jesus was doing. He was making disciples. There was a reminiscence. You might say a restored image of God in these men as they were learning to be more and more like him empowered by the Spirit. And so then you have these epistle letters like the book of Ephesians where Paul writes to the church. And what does he do? Ephesians 1, he, he breaks down the gospel. He reminds them of who they are. He reminds them of the God that they serve. He reminds them that they've been saved by faith, by faith, the incredible mercies of God. He reminds them of the mystery of the gospel in chapter 3. He, pray, he gives this prayer for spiritual strength. And then verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, what does he say? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have called. With what? With all humility and gentleness and peace, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the Spirit. What are all these things? Yeah, it's the characteristics of Christ. It's not random rules. Now you're Christians, so this is how you live. But he's like, no, look, you have been called to be a son of God. That's what he's teaching them at the first of Ephesians. And so then he goes, therefore, walk worthy of the call. In other words, look like a son of God. You're a disciple of Jesus. Represent him. Be a manifestation of who God is as you go out there. You go to the book of Timothy, and what is Timothy all about? Timothy, he's, Paul's writing to Timothy, like, here's how you lead God's people. Something we know God cares very much about, just from the story of Moses alone we know that. And so he gives qualification of elders. These are the kinds of guys I'm looking for. These are the way I want you to lead them. I want you to lead them with boldness, even though you're young. I want you to protect them from false teachings that are going to come in. And he gives instruction on how to lead this new thing called the church, these people. And remember, he goes through as he's pointing all these things out. These are all the things the Pharisees failed in before. And so he's teaching them over and over and over as they go through all of these kinds of things. What's happening here in the church can't be missed. It's not just that we are this club that lives by some random set of social or moral rules. The church is a group of people striving by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to look like Jesus and to call other people to follow. Think about what Paul even says. He even says it in Ephesians. Doesn't he look at Ephesians 5 verse 1? Therefore, what? Be imitators of who? God. As beloved what? Children. Be like him. Take on his attributes. Grow in that. This is what God has been calling us to from the very beginning. And then I hate that I have to skip all this stuff, but this is just more reason for you guys to read these things on your own. Look at Revelation chapter 21. That is a lot of fast forwarding. We just did the whole New Testament in five minutes. 
Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And here we see the culmination. This is what Eden was supposed to be from the beginning. This relationship with God that is no longer hindered by sin, no longer hindered by death, no longer hindered by fear or pain or temptation or any of those things. Now God is in our midst. The gap has been officially closed. There's no more separation whatsoever. And we are now there in the glory of God with that sin nature gone. We are no longer like Adam. We are like Christ. And he's saying, that's my people. And we're saying, that is our God. That's the overall call. Now, knowing all of that, when you see all of that, and I hope you guys were able to track with me some on that, my hope is then when you stand back and you read Matthew 28 and it says, now go make disciples. What does that mean? Well, I think it becomes real clear when you look from the big map, when you can understand this is what God has been doing all along. When the church says, when we as a church say we need to put more of an emphasis, we did this in our annual report just a few weeks ago, we need to put more of an emphasis on disciple making and and, and really tangibly investing in that and celebrating that as a win. Why? Is that just a random thing Heritage picked to say this is what we need to camp on? No, because this is what God has been doing from the beginning of time. This is what God has been working on from the moment Eden was spoken into existence, and it's the thing that will be complete when we stand before him. And it's the mission God has given to the church. Hey, Jeff, church, be holy for I am holy. Follow my commands because I'm your father, and this is what I look like, and this is what I have done to save you and to rescue you. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, to mold you from one degree of glory to another. That image of God you were created in, Jeff, that's about not about your kind out there, but about my kind. In my image, Jeff, you're going to live that out. And the brokenness that sin created, that broken, tarnished image of God, that thing about us us that isn't quite right, it's going to be restored. That's what I want my church to be about. And then he's, Jeff, and there's people out there. I've got kids out there that don't even know me yet. Can you go get them? Will you go tell them? Well, how can we not? This is what the story's been from the very beginning. (laughs) Beware lest we be about anything else. Amen? Does that make sense? All right. Well, that was kind of a long one. Um, Brent's going to be super mad at me because I've now gone over late two services in a row. So uh, please do me a favor. Your children's workers, those of you that have kids over in Awanas, hug them when you pick up their kids because their hair might be falling out by the time you get over here. God, I pray you, you would just bless us with greater understanding of these things than my mere words could possibly ever bring. I pray, God, that that we would be able to chew on these things and think about these things and see how you work throughout Scripture as we move forward. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a blessing to us as we learn more more and more about you. But, Lord, I pray more than anything, um, oh, God forbid, Lord, that we know these things now and not actually do them. So may the call to discipleship be something we desire for ourselves and something we pursue and call others to as well, that we might fulfill your commandment to your church. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Love you guys. God bless.